0: and welcome to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today's message is part two of Richard's Bible study on the book of Ecclesiastes. This book focuses on the search for meaning in life. We hope you'll gain new insights through today's study. All right. As I was saying, the message that we get in
1: Ecclesiastes is timeless. Uh, It applies to all people at all times. And since some of you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you a short review and ask you to really just kind of think through everything that we've said. We looked last week at important phrases, important words that were used, and I think concluded that The phrase life under the sun or just the word under the sun, that phrase was crucial because what that means whenever he would say that, he was talking about looking at life as if there is no God. It means the human perspective of life devoid of God. Another way we can look at it is the modern secular view of life. And if you'll remember what was Solomon's conclusion, if there is no God, life is meaningless. It's all vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. Your pursuits and your endeavors are nothing more than chasing after the wind. They have no lasting value. And therefore Solomon concluded that life under the sun means there is no God who stands behind human existence. There is no God sustaining the universe. There is no life after death. There's no judgment. There's no eternity. And when it comes to all the big questions that philosophers and intellectuals have asked over the centuries, there are no answers to those questions. There's no one to give the answers. therefore Solomon concludes life is meaningless and ultimately I think if you've read through it as we talked last week eventually it just leads to despair in your life. I mean you could say a good bit of the teachings in Ecclesiastes is depressing now, I want to give you an example, a real-life example of someone who lived, uh, I think, you know, 200 or so years ago, and an example of, in the first half of his life, he was an atheist. He was a nihilist, as he put it. He believed in nothing. He believed just as Solomon believed. And then, a turn took place in his life and when he was completely transformed. And you, you'll see how it impacted his view of life, his view of the universe, and his view of meaning in life. The person I'm talking about is the famous Russian author Tolstoy. He was an atheist, and he was incredibly depressed. Listen to what he said, these are his words. He says, if not today, then tomorrow, sickness and death is going to come to everyone and nothing will remain except the stench and the worms. My deeds, whatever they may be, will be forgotten sooner or later and I will be no more. I mean, what does that sound like? It sounds like Solomon and the thing that he struggled with every day was thoughts of suicide. Why live? This life has no meaning. Well, then something happened. He kept noticing. He lived in a town, and he was an aristocrat, and he had lots of money from his writings. I think his family had money, and he hobnobbed with a <clears throat> a number of. Yeah, wealthy people, a well-educated people. And yet he also lived in this town. A month there were a large number of uneducated peasants. And yet the thing about these peasants is they were Christians. And they were full of life. Their life seemed to have meaning. They had something that he didn't have. And he began to notice. And he says this, <clears throat> At some point, his imagination and creative spirit took a radical turn. His life, his life and perspective on death was completely transformed. And ironically, he began to find encouragement and optimism in the community of old uneducated Christian peasants in his town, whom he now realized were much wiser and much more in touch with the realities of human existence than his educated, arrogant aristocratic friends. And so Tolstoy began to read the New Testament. As he searched for answers, he read the words of Jesus. And every page seemed to speak to him lucidly. Over time, by faith, Tolstoy embraced the love of Christ. And as he did, he tells us that the dark, menacing figure of death and the meaninglessness of life was transformed into a bright promise. He said, I quote, for 35 years of my life, I was in the proper acceptation of the word, a nihilist, not a revolutionary socialist, but a man who believed in nothing. But then five years ago, my faith came to me. I believed in the doctrine of Jesus. And my whole life when a, underwent a sudden transformation. Life and death ceased to be evil. And instead of living with despair, I tasted joy and happiness that death could not have worked. So you see, here's a guy, here you have Solomon, who has this basically the same perspective of life under the sun. You see it in Tolstoy, and then you see it like we looked at last week, Woody Allen. In fact, in Allen's biography, he uses these words to describe life. Life is alienation, loneliness, and emptiness verging on madness. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror and renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. That could have come right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. But this is the question. I'm going to say this. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to stop and see what your comments are. If life is meaningless and if it leads to despair and depression, what should a human being do? If there is no God, if there is no <coughs> meaning of life, what should we do? Fine I'll meaning. stop here. Comment. What, who said, what did you say? I
0: said find meaning.
1: Find meaning. Okay. It, what else? Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> Anybody else? At that point, it looks to me like death would be the only out. Well, that's, I that's, what he, that's what he thought about all the time. A, that's the way I feel about it, too. I mean, if you get to thinking about it like he's thinking about it, there's really no sense of going any further. The sooner the end gets here, the better off you're going to be with it. All you're going to do is work, and it don't mean nothing. That's the conclusion a lot of philosophers come up with, is, you know, should I stay alive or should I not? Anybody else? I, I really do think this does explain... Um, you know, why, I mean, there, there are all kind of reasons, people, and I am no sense of this, of suicide, but I think it, it does offer an explanation of why people take their life because they see no hope in the future. And, yeah, you know, there's no God there to, 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 to give me hope. So, and, and I'm in a lot of pain, why not just hang it up? And so I think that's the thinking, in fact, I'm going to talk at the BCC about a book uh, that was written on um Study that this scholar did on civilization and suicide, and and it's it's fascinating uh, the conclusions he comes to. But anyway, anybody else? Well, let me share you kind of. Let's talk about kind of where to get. What's what to to do? What's a human? Let's let's kind of take the view that Solomon did. You know, Solomon. He kind of. If you notice, he vacillates. He starts talking about life. We're going to look. We're going. read some scripture from Ecclesiastes. He went from uh, looking at life under the sun, saying it's meaningless, it's chasing after the wind, but then he'll start, he'll bring God back in the picture, particularly at the end, which is the conclusion he comes to. If you haven't read the book and you listen to me speak, you're thinking, man, this must be a depressing book to read. Stay stay away from it. Uh, At the end, you, you get to see his conclusions. And throughout the book, he weaves into it, and he makes these statements about God and the meaning of life. But there was this famous French philosopher, his name was Montaigne, he was considered the greatest French philosopher during the French Renaissance. Now he died in 1592, that just shows you, again, how, how far you go back in time. Uh, I did some research on him as I was preparing this. He, uh, He grew up in the church, and he was, I guess, what you would call kind of a nominal Christian. But at some point along the way, he lost his faith. He became a skeptic. And like Solomon, and like Tolstoy, and like Woody Allen, it eventually led him into the abyss, into despair. But he was a writer. He wrote on these things. And this is what he concluded. He said, and this is kind of in in relation to what Steve said, he realized he had to come up with a strategy to deal with the despair, to deal with what you, you mentioned, of why keep living. And this is what he came up with. He said, facing a world without faith and without God Montaigne suggested that finding some means of near near perpetual distraction was an escape from the horror of cosmic isolation. He said, what you need in your life is a lot of variety because variety always solaces, dissolves, and scatters. By changing place, by changing occupation, company, new friends, (coughs) new people, I escape into the crowd of of other thoughts and diversions where it loses my trace and leaves me feeling safe. So, what's he saying? What's the strategy? Divert the mind. Find ways to keep yourself from thinking about it. social media. Social media. Mean, listen, we are, we live in a culture that can divert the mind better than any other culture, probably ever. Or subvert <laughs> <man. Pervert. laughs> the mind. Pervert the mind. There are all kind of ways to fill your life with distractions. And through distractions, you don't have to think about it. Yes, Dave? You know, he's just trying to go back into what um, Solomon talked about here earlier. You pull yourself into your work. Uh, you pull yourself into chasing women or drink, or what else did he do? Yeah, uh, know. wisdom, knowledge, uh, good works. But those are distractions. They are. I mean, exactly. And I think Montaigne has just kind of updated what Solomon said several thousand years before that. Anybody else?
0: You know, it just reminds me, cars car is designed to run with gasoline.
1: Mean, put anything else in there, it the for quality. It's designed for one reason. That's it. And when you don't, you don't run real well. The car doesn't run well at all. And that is, that that's, but, Jim, that's basically Solomon's conclusion, period. And it's true today, just as it was 2,800 years ago. Anybody else? Well, Montaigne dies, and as I said, 1592, 30 years later, Blaise Pascal is born. Now, this may not be of interest to y'all. I find it fascinating. So i uh, just hang in there with me for a few minutes. But Pascal comes along, and he read Matt Montaigne. And he was a skeptic. He was a philosopher, and mathematician. And then if you know about He has this incredibly dramatic conversion. I mean, he, he, it happened to him one night. And he, you know how he describes it? Fire. And you you ought to read and and this evening in which he became a Christian, he wrote it all down. And he put it in his pocket of his coat. And then he sewed that up. And after he was dead, his his family found him. And it's published. And it's powerful. But anyway, (coughs) um, he lamented the way that Montaigne and had such an influence on the French culture that people never thought deeply about these issues and questions. They looked for ways to divert the mind, as he called it, they frittered their lives away. And he concluded, now this is, I want you to think about this. This was his conclusion, that all the unhappiness of men, is, these are Pascal's words, all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot live quietly and stay quietly in their own chamber. In other words, people can't sit in silence and be by themselves and be quiet. And boy, think about how true that is today. I mean, can you go home, say nobody's home, and you, your wife's out of town your kids are gone, and sit in your house, maybe read, be quiet, the entire evening. We don't do that very well. We've got to turn something on, whether it's the computer or the TV. He goes on to say, Men have a a secret instinct, instinct which impels them to seek amusement and occupation abroad and which arises from the sense of their constant unhappiness and despair. Guys, do you see this? The landscape. All the way back to Solomon. Then to Montaigne. Pascal recognizes it then Tolstoy Woody Allen you see the consistency of where life under the sun leads us and so what do we do we look for ways to divert the mind and what is one of the best ways to divert the mind remember the last words of Woody Allen in the movie Rides and Misdemeanors which I read last week too. He says, since there is no meaning in life, all you can do is enjoy the pleasures of the day. Guys, this is what our world is doing. And this is is why Martin Sully, as we talked about last week, was concluded. This is the reason that the baby boom generation is ten times more depressed than the previous generation. Because when all you do is live your life for pleasurable satisfaction, you will end up empty and depressed. And remember why he said, the reason he pointed to? Kind of goes back to Jim, what you just said. Sutherland says, your ancestors, our past generation, lived for causes bigger than themselves, starting with God. But we've lost that. And it has to make all of you sitting around the table who have kids who are the Y generation or the millennial generation, what's gonna happen to them? Where is this leading them? (coughs) Any comment or question? Well, let's, everybody turn to Ecclesiastes. A little longer uh, introduction than I anticipated, but, uh, I think it's important, and and, you know, it it leads to kind of a, a somber thought about our nation. And yet, I am convinced that the solution is found, as Jim said, in a relationship with God. Everybody in Ecclesiastes? Go to chapter two. Chapter 2. Jeff Grantham, how about reading verses 1, 2, and 3? All right. I thought in my heart, Come now, I will test you with
0: pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives.
1: All right. Now if you would jump down to verses eight, 8 through 11. I amassed silver and
0: gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused by part no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun.
1: By the way, when Jeff read at the NIV, he says he, um, he talks about um, having a harem. I don't know what a harem is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the new American standard uses the word concubine. He says, "I have many concubines." In English, that's a lot of women. That's a lot of women who basically would do whatever you want. They're kind of a, they're kind of your. <laughs> Sex slaves, so to speak. You're not married to them, but they it's kind of like their property that you own. And he says, it says he had a harem as many concubines. If you honestly think about it, guys, the best way to divert the mind from despair and a sense of meaninglessness is the pleasure. I mean think about it, since there's no objective meaning in the universe then we should seek subjective meaning based on what you feel. And pleasure impacts what you feel. What you feel its your feelings. Pleasure makes you feel good. And it's the most natural and the best aversion we have. I mean, think about it. Intense pleasure can remove despair quicker than anything. I mean, if you're down in the you take a couple of shots of whiskey, and it. it's amazing. You feel better real quick. But if you look at Solomon, and this is what, what we should learn. By the way, um, I just got an email the other day, yesterday. Um, as I mentioned to you last week, R.C. Squirrel, or two weeks ago, R.C. Squirrel came to Christ after the reading. Ecclesiastes had a huge influence on I read this uh, email yesterday same with J.I. Packer because he really causes us to take a good hard look at life and what life is like without God but if you think about it Solomon you would have to agree had more intense pleasure than any man who ever lived And Solomon says, as delightful as pleasure can be, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It leaves you empty. And it only temporarily diverts the mind. And you know what he's saying? I'm going to show you. This is really a great insight. Ultimately, he says, pleasure will fail to distract you fail to distract you. It will fail to divert your mind from the meaninglessness of life. Now let me show you where this is in in Ecclesiastes that we just read. Go back, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 in chapter 2. It's almost like he was experimenting. He said I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. That's important to know. While he was going through all of this, it says, my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven in the few years of our lives. In other words, I tried to cheer myself up by drinking and embracing folly, but my mind was still guiding me. And then go down to verse 9. He says, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. But he says, my wisdom stood by me. You see what he's saying, and I didn't get this. I got this from a commentator, but I think it's right on. He's saying, no matter how hard I try, Through pleasure to divert my mind from the emptiness of life, I couldn't because no matter how hard I tried, my wisdom stayed with me. In other words, the truth of life kept breaking through. Life under the sun is futile, meaningless like chasing after the wind, and pleasure can only temporarily divert my mind from that fact. That's what he's saying. Now, that's what C.S. Lewis, you know, in the book that I wrote, Save Passage, it's about what C.S. Lewis says about how human beings deal with the fear of death. And he says the number one strategy is the same strategy that Montaigne suggested find a way to divert the mind, fill your life with activity and pleasure. Anything you can do from thinking about being mortal. And knowing that one day your life is going to end. But it has the same problem as this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're continually, you can try to to get your mind involved in so many things that you don't think about it. But you know what? There are always funerals you've got to go to. And every time you go to a funeral, you're reminded. One day, you're going to be in that box. And as you get older, and like me, you watch your body begin to decay. You can't—I mean, I guess you can get plastic surgery and you know you work out, but that just—that's more temporary. It's like I just noticed yesterday. I picked up the phone in our bedroom. We still have a landline, and right there. On my wife, my wife's side of the bed, on her, her her table, there's a picture of us when we got married, 20 years ago. And I looked at that and I thought, Good, <laughs> night. <laughs> man, I've aged. I couldn't believe it. But that's what that's what Lewis says. This strategy doesn't work. Trying to divert the mind. Off the serious issues of life doesn't work. Comments, questions, anybody?
0: Richard, you, uh, you get the pursuit of pleasure it also, uh, is also, I the leads to addiction, because you know, pleasure is never maintained. The same activity will to do the same level of pleasure. It degrades.
1: So you keep having to refill it, refill it, and look for other. You've been reading. You must have read my mind. That's what i What you just said. What I'm going to say next. And right it's right off. It's what Keller. He talks about this all the time. He calls it the tolerance factor. Exactly what you're you're, you're saying, Mike. He says pleasure, pleasurable agents give you a rush, but there's this tolerance factor. And then he uses this as an example, he says. Let's just say you need five liters of some type of pleasurable agent, and when you ingest it into your your body the first time, you have this great first-time experience. But he says the next time, you're going to need a little more, and then a little more. And right, he says, our minds and our bodies adapt. And these pleasurable agents wear off in their ability to create pleasure. And he says, this is how addiction happens. And then when you have an addiction to anything, it be pornography, it could be drugs, or alcohol, it could be anything. Yeah. Hey, we'll, 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 we'll read that verse next week. But but think about it, you got two you have two options when you're heavily addicted to something. Now, what are those two options? Oh come on, guys. It's a smart, it's a smart group. But what? Get more. Get more, stay on that path, keep going, keep pursuing, or stop. Now if you keep going down the path, it's eventually going to destroy you in some form or fashion. It may take a while, but it'll happen. The other thought is to give up the pleasure. But you know the problem with that? For life under the sun? The diversion's gone. It was a diversion you had, and now the diversion's gone. And you're back to emptiness. Unless you find, as Jim said, the car and gasoline goes much. That's where Christ comes in and can fill the void. now, I don't want to run out of time on this, but this is—I think this is important. Uh, what I want to mention is one of the problems with pleasure is that it leads to addiction. It's that tolerance factor that that Mike just mentioned. But there's another side to pleasure that maybe is not as obvious, but it's, it is truly the social scientists will tell you. The, the problem with a pleasure obsessed society or culture is that they have a problem dealing with something that's created by it. And that problem is boredom. I never, I didn't see this. I, I found this as I was studying this issue. But Dr. Gene V says boredom is a chronic symptom of a pleasure obsessed age. And when pleasure becomes one's number one priority, the result is ironically boredom. Now, let me ask you this question. What do you think happens when you get, particularly you get younger people and they're bored? Let's say young men who are bored out of their minds. And let's say they don't have, Let's say pleasure's not an option. What do you think that what do you think happened to alcohol. That's the natural thing. But boredom ultimately leads to aggression and violence. And that's what we're seeing out in our world. Senseless aggression and violence. Pascal said, when you get a bunch of young boys and they don't have anything to do and they get bored, that's when they look for ways to torture the cat. Hmm. (laughs) I know know y'all probably never been into torturing cats, but that was maybe something they did back then. Psychiatrist Richard Winter says, aggression and violence is one of the bitter roots of boredom. And if you're interested in this topic, he wrote a great book on this, this is where I got this information called Stillborn in a Culture of Entertainment. And that's why, again, I would say it makes you wonder where this pleasure-obsessed, entertainment-obsessed culture is going to end up. Comments? Questions? What's the name of that book again? It's called called, uh, Stillborn in a Culture of Entertainment. And the author is a psychiatrist, Richard Winter. W-I-N-T-E-R. So Richard is a parent of a bunch of young kids. Other
0: dads give you the advice. Keep your kids involved in a lot of stuff.
1: So you're in scouts, you're in sports, you're in whatever. Is that wrong? Uh, Absolutely. I don't think so. Um, I think there has to be a good balance I mean, I mean, that's the one thing we talk to our kids about is a balance between their activities and their schoolwork, reading. We, we place a lot of emphasis on reading. Um, but where the problems come in is is that is is their hearts and minds from the things that they can get off of the computer. I mean, and their iPhones and. Um, you know, that's where so many kids get in their pleasure today is, and, and how they're entertained is through uh, electronics, electronic media, and digital yeah, television. And then you got Netflix, and all the streaming coming in, it's amazing. But I would say something like, you know, something like, you brought up Scouts. You know the great thing about that? It's relational. And I want to come back to talking about that component to all of this. Anybody else? Another thing that you've talked about in the past, Richard, is amusement.
0: The definition of amusement is without thought. We're living in a, a culture of that source, thought, but yeah. um, is amusing ourselves to death.
1: Got yeah, a good memory, that's right, that's right, on. that's why I know what we're talking about. That comes from um, oh, what's the guy's name? This the name of the book. Neil Postman. It's called "Amusing Ourselves to Death." It's a fabulous, book. It's a great read. All right. So what are, we, what are we supposed to do, guys? Right, here we're talking about, you know, are we supposed to just, what do we do with pleasure? That's kind of what, what the focus is today. I mean, do we just abstain, abstain from it completely and say, no pleasure in life? Well, you've you got to step back and remember that pleasure is a gift of God. And Solomon says, God wants us to enjoy life. You still are at uh, chapter 2? Go down and read uh, 24 and 25. <coughs> Ephesians 2, 24 and 25. Everybody there? Here you are, about reading those books. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink, that it, that it is from, excuse me, and
0: tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God who can eat and who can have enjoyment
1: of the So here, here Solomon, like he said, he kind of vacillates. Now he comes and he talks about enjoying life, recognizing it's from the hand of God. Ray Steadman says that the book of Ecclesiastes pounds home the lesson that enjoyment does not come with increased possessions or pleasures. It's a gift that God must give. And he says a key, this is really good. A key to enjoyment, proper enjoyment, is to enjoy the pleasures of life in a way that is pleasing to God, and to recognize that all the pleasures of life are a gift from God, and that we should consistently be giving him thanks. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. So if you would turn over, let's turn over real quick with the New Testament, I'm going to run out of time here. I think we're okay. First Timothy, chapter four. First Timothy four, four. Now know, i something right <clears throat> <clears throat> First Timothy 4, 4. Warren, have I read it?
0: For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to
1: be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Everything that's created by God is good, including the pleasures of life. But he says it should all be received with gratitude. Now do you remember what we said about the significance and importance of having a grateful heart? I mean, I I kind of pound this home. This should be a significant part of your daily prayer life. is to giving thanks to God. It's the key to having a healthy soul. You remember Han Selye I've read this a number of times. Now, he was kind of the, the first true pioneer in discovering the impact of emotions on health. He wrote like 30 books on it, and he's at the end of his life, he summarized all of his research. And he said that he concluded that gratitude is the single most nourishing response to life's events, it has the most nourishing impact on your soul. More so than anything else. And so, are we and this is I think what we, we can glean from Solomon's words. To receive the pleasures of life in a way that is pleasing to God. But also, Receive with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Any comment? Richard, was a TED talk
0: and a happiness that we're here. And I start out with a psychologist who said, What happens is avoid rumination. And I get a super so, uh, entrepreneur who said, It's implicit. And the last guy was a monk in a monastery in the state of New York. And he said, Is that what you just said? All gratitude.
1: Anybody else? Yesterday, just real quick, and I'm going to wrap this up with some words from C.S. Lewis. One thing, when we think of the word pleasure, I think we often think of, 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 of things that you take into your life or you experience is what pleasure is all about, but somebody pointed out yesterday, and I, I started thinking about it, I thought, yeah, that's true. You know what else we get a, a lot of pleasure out of? Buying things. Think about it. I mean, you know, we, we look at money for all different types of reasons, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that next week. I mean, money, to, you know, is important to some people, it provides them security. Uh, money is a way that, that you can make yourself look good uh, as you spend it. Uh, there are all kind of reasons, but but some people. <clears throat> Thing they like about money is they can go buy something, and when they buy it, it brings some enjoyment to their lives. I mean, it can be a a, a new set of golf clubs, a new shotgun, a new car, but it's the same problem. <laughs> The problem with pleasure is, as we've said, after you experience the pleasure, you get thirsty again. You want something else. Same thing with the material possession. The moment you receive it, the moment you get it, there's this adrenaline rush. And the, But the moment you get it, the energy and the enjoyment for that begins to go like this. And it's just a matter of time before that thing that you bought is just something ordinary in your life. And then your heart's restless again. And we make a joke about it. This is what how women do with shoes. They, they, they <laughs> love to buy shoes. It gives them great pleasure. The problem is, after they've bought them and they've worn them out and people have seen it, them, it's kind of like, I guess I can, I'm going to have to go buy another pair. But that's the way material possessions are. Which leads me to this final point. One of the things Solomon is saying is that the the pleasures of life, and that can include the material possessions that give us, the pleasures of life can't satisfy. They're always on the down. But there's only one thing in life that has the potential. One thing in life that has the potential to grow love, in enjoyment, and in meaning over time. And that is our relationships. Doesn't mean that they will grow. Unfortunately, so many relationships don't grow. But that's the only thing that you, you basically if you live in our relationships the way God designed them, they will grow in love and commitment and depth. And enjoyment over time and that was his intent but that also includes us putting our relationship with him first and foremost over everything else which leads me to what I'm gonna close with this is powerful this is worth you getting up this morning and coming to hear this are the words from C.S. Lewis on the way of God and the enjoyment of pleasure. And it's great. He says, all pleasure and happiness is in its own natural good and God wishes us to enjoy it. He does not, however, wish us to enjoy it without relation to him. Still less to prefer it to him. Keeps emphasizing the basic principle of the spiritual life when one's relationship to God is given first place, everything else, including our earthly loves and pleasures, increase, not decrease. This is one of the great paradoxes of life. He goes on to say, When I have learned to love God, more than my earthly desires and pleasures then i will enjoy my earthly desires better than i do now you know people don't believe that they believe just the opposite if if i put christ first in my life he's going to take away all my pleasures and all my happiness Insofar as I learn to love my earthly desires at the expense of God, I shall be moving towards that state in which I shall not enjoy earthly pleasures and experience the meaninglessness and despair that we've been talking about. And then he says, when first things are put first, secondary things are not suppressed. They ironically increase. Guys, I say it again. This is one of the great paradoxes of life. And modern people just don't get it. And sometimes I'm not, not even sure you're Christian. But I think that is a significant truth to use here as we contrast it with the meaninglessness and despair of life. Let's look
0: You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to Richard at richardesimmons3.com.